I'm Yasi Salek, and I'm the host of Bandsplain, a show where we explain cult bands and iconic artists by going deep into their histories and discographies. We're back with a brand new season at our brand new home, the Ringer Podcast Network, tackling a whole new batch of artists, from grunge gods to power pop pioneers to new metal legends, and many, many more. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, absolutely reeling from his performance review from the ISB, it's Andy Greenwald! We used to do this on video and the people would have seen you just flashing ones. Like you were intimidating uh, me with your money roll before we started For some reason, my wife podcast. left a bunch of small bills by my computer, and I don't know what it's in payment for or what I was supposed to use it for, but I just thought I would throw a little bit of uh, Make It Rain for you a little bit. Welcome you, to... You look like Fat Joe in the Make It Rain video. That's right. It's Thursday's episode of The Watch, a special one today. Andy and I are going to be talking about the fourth episode of Andor and the season finale of Reservation Dogs, and then Greenwald mm-hmm. has an interview with... Reservation Dogs creator Sterling Harjo that I was sadly not able to make. But Andy, I can't wait to listen to it. How are you doing? Beautiful day out today. It's a, it's a good day. Thoughts with those in Florida who are not having a good weather yeah. day. Um, it's just confounding. The difference. I mean, I'm sorry to be like Mr. Basic Guy looking at the Doppler, but it is really crazy. What yeah. is possible within the span of one country in one day. So where do you want to start today? I was. Uh, mm-hmm. I had one bit of news I didn't prep you for this. I just wanted to okay. throw it out there. Right. I, I, you know, I have some British background, so I like to think of myself as a bit of a, a tea leaf expert. Yeah. Um, I'm going to tell you something that I think is happening here. Okay. I, I, have you read any of Jeremy Strong's press for Armageddon Time? Not like, especially this week's. I didn't read any. I, I, I feel like I get the bit. You know what I mean? Should I have been reading it more closely? I see the covers. I see the face. I see the pull quotes. You know, yes, he's serious, but he can still laugh. You know, I I get it. Now, fool me once, fool me twice kind of stuff. I understand. But you remember like earlier last season Succession when we were like, if this is the end for Jeremy Strong, it is the boldest, bravest decision that I've seen a prestige television show make in a long time. And we wound up loving the finale and we wound up loving that season. So it wasn't in any way. I forgot about that. We thought Kendall was done. I think right? this is a, I think this is going to be a, a wrap for Jeremy on, on this next season based on like the 
I, I was just reading like the tea leaves what? from these interviews where he's talking a lot about like other projects that he's working on and how okay. like even even in this article it mentions how he shot Armageddon time in like one of his few breaks that he really gets from succession. Cause when succession is up and running and going, mm -hmm. they are basically like they air and then it's like, they usually shoot, you know, I think they're, I believe they're shooting season four now, right? They are shooting. Yeah. But, uh, the, some of the stuff that they were talking about. So I guess he's doing a, uh, nine 11, a Chernobyl style, nine 11 drama with Tobias Lindholm. Chernobyl and style. It's with Plan B, which is Brad Pitt and Dee Dee Gardner's company. And Dee Dee Gardner is a secondary in the Hollywood Reporter article, I believe. And she talks about how, like, Jeremy and I are talking a lot about, like, what we can do together post-succession. Yeah. And I was just like, yeah, it just feels like the the sort of... I, 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 don't, I don't even know if this is a spoiler. I don't even know if this is news. I just thought I would bring it up because I thought it was so interesting. Interesting because you think they're not being coy about his upcoming block of free time or what it means for the show itself. Or they're, it's true. But they're very, I mean, obviously I think Jeremy Strong is going to be in the Oscar race. So I think that there is a d degree of which drum beating is going to start now for Jeremy Strong getting nominated for Armageddon time. I'm not sure if that, I guess that would probably be best supporting actor. But in general, I thought it was interesting because like a lot of this stuff is going up against the New Yorker profile. Like it's basically yeah. not necessarily disputing it as much as being like that was a fucked up time for me and it was kind of weird. And, you know, I in lots of ways, I don't really take back anything I said in the New York article, but I didn't agree with the portrayal of me or whatever. But then like I just thought it was kind of fascinating to see somebody sort of plot out their post, maybe not their post-succession career, but be like, I have all this other stuff on the hopper. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's, yeah. I, I think it's interesting, too. I think there's two camps of thinking about this. One, Jeremy Strong, even his closest friends, colleagues, and uh, peers will say is an ambitious guy. Yeah. And there is a proud, rich tr tradition in television of minted stars. I mean, Jeremy Strong was a respected and working actor before Succession, but now he's an Emmy, you know, he's a thing. He, he's an Emmy-nominated uh, guy. And TV actors who become suddenly get the calls and the offers who are already ambitious are generally start chafing around yeah. season three, right? They want to go do the other things. They want to do the movies while they're being offered to them. They want to be known for more than just the one thing. They want the credit for themselves. So that's that's normal. And I would feel like he would be doing that regardless. I also think on the flip side of it, Jesse Armstrong, creator of Succession, has been pretty blunt as well in his specific vision for the length of the show. And we've never heard, I don't think, Casey or Francesca or anyone else at HBO clap back. You know, like famously when Damon and Carlton with Lost were like, we need to end the show after season five. And the head of ABC was like, hmm, yeah. counterpoint, season right. 10. And then they compromise. I mean, I don't see that. So I think that it's pretty much in the ether that Succession will be done after five. So it's possible that they this is all just... They could do that. Yeah, that, that's that's entirely true. Yes. But the wild card that I think you're alluding to that we love and I'm sure we'll be talking about weekly when the season starts, season four. Would be success without Kendall. It's that this show is, is masterful. And the trust equity built up by Jesse and his writer's rooms is just unparalleled. So I don't really want to see succession without Kendall. But should that day come, will be a decision I will trust and support in, right? And and be eagerly anticipating what's on the other side of it. So that's rare, I think. Because usually when you see stars making moves or, you know, 
talking about getting out, you're like, well, they're going to sink the show behind them. They're going to scuttle the ship. And I don't think that's necessarily the case here. I have one other question for you before we get into mm-hmm. Andor. How interested are you in cinematic car crashes? Not the actual act of a car crashing in a movie, but when you hear about a movie that seems like... So in the case of Blonde, mm-hmm. which is coming out, I believe, this week on Netflix, it's the Andrew Dominic movie about Marilyn Monroe standing, starring mm-hmm. Anna Darmus. And Big Pick did an episode on it earlier this week. I encourage everybody to go check out. But is one of the more savaged movies by a major director uh, that I can remember in terms of it being like this? It's not that this film doesn't make sense or that there are pl- plot mm-hmm. holes or that the production was obviously cheap or un, you know, unfinished or whatever. It's like literally I hate this movie and what it has to say. And um, I was curious whether that kind of stuff is supposed to a much lesser extent that happened with Don't Worry Darling where yeah. it was obviously a lot of off-screen drama and then some pretty lukewarm to hostile reviews. Do those kinds of reactions to movies make you want to watch a film more clarify big pick that's the movie podcast it's, it is right? yeah. It, yeah is sean still cranking that out he is twice a week good for him that's yeah. great um it's a great question i think first of all i thought that i was interested in cinematic car crashes until i watched the last anna de Armas film with ben affleck and i oh yeah dark the, the water erotic thriller yeah yeah I, yeah I took no pleasure from that like i i did not enjoy the badness. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I, that did not get, fill me with schadenfreude or, or life. In this case, this was a, this is a tough one, right? Because I think that the idea of like a, a directorial overreach or it's just like ambition and vision crashing into the reality of execution, like that could be interesting, right? Like, like Heaven's Gate is a film that is worth seeing, even though it has become synonymous with cinematic disaster. Well, it crashed a studio. Yeah. Heaven's Gate itself is actually quite a beautiful movie to watch and you know if you have the patience is, is quite rewarding and i'm a fan of andrew dominic's work generally but i have to say that this one is hitting in a venn diagram that is makes me not want to see it because the reason people seem to be upset with it is that it is brutalist right that it is just like 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 torture porn of an icon um and I mean that in the theoretical sense, not necessarily what happens to Anna Darmus's Marilyn Monroe on screen. It's being compared gather, to Passion of the Christ, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. I mean, it's also part of me, the part of me that usually talks with you in the first 50 minutes of these podcasts, we're just like, man, we miss the old days of the industry. I mean, every time something slips loose from the algorithm controls, I, I kind of got to give it you some support. credit. You want to support yeah. Whether it was confessed Fletch last week, by the way, did finish it finally. Did not see the ending where John Hamm flies away in the back of the dragon. Like that, that sunk the budget right there. A lot of questions who, about his parentage, but yeah. And who ended up on the throne? Unclear. Um, or in this case, where it's just like a exacting director without a history of like commercial success, but, you know, obviously uh, uh, aesthetic and creative success. Like, just somehow gets the purse strings loose, right? Like that, that rarely happens. He, it's really, there's a couple of pretty sensational Andrew Dominic interviews. There's one in Sight and Sound that is hostile or it's contentious in a way that you rarely see quote unquote celebrity interviews anymore. And it's this, uh, journalist for Sight and Sound, just essentially like calling Andrew Dominic out, not, not even on, 
some of the uh, like I guess social or worldview points of the film, but like straight up on the aesthetics of it or some of the decisions made. And it's him going, but they're going back and forth. And it's obvious that Andrew Dominic knows a lot about what he's talking about. Clearly he's a masterful filmmaker, but he's also like deeply immersed in the mythology and the lore of Marilyn Monroe. And it's an incredible conversation. But like in that interview, I think he says basically like, yeah, like Netflix like writes you a check and then they're like, when can we upload this? Essentially. But also, isn't this interview, isn't he also like, no one watches Marilyn Monroe movies? And the yes. interviewer's like, yes, I watched these three. And he's like, why would you do that? Right. Yeah. That's so crazy. I Are you going to watch it? No, I got to admit, uh, just personal facts about me. Don't care about Elvis and don't care about Marilyn. Chris, this is why we're friends. I've never heard it stated so succinctly. I, I don't care about those people. And I never have. Is it? Are we? No, uniquely... I, I don't. I'm not bragging. I think that that might no. be like an, a deficiency. Like I can't truly appreciate the work of Grail mm. Marcus, kind of thing. But like, I don't really like Elvis. Has never meant yeah. anything to me. Well, he was a hero to most, I believe. <laughs> That's right. To, to quote, to quote a, a better writer and thinker right. than either of us on the mic. Um, boy, it's really interesting. So I, I see you, by the way, and I see what you're doing. You're about to pivot into talking about television shows of the week as if that was all of the news. And I appreciate it. I respect the gambit. But your silence on this issue cannot ring out on this podcast any longer. For too, too long now, Chris, you have been mute on the subject of the Epics channel rebranding itself as MGM+. And I will not stand for it. Yeah. Uh, If you follow Bill Simmons on Twitter, he he addressed this uh, and he addressed Mm. whether or not he and I were involved in the uh, the sort of rebranding of Epics mm-hmm. turning into MGM Plus and its flagship show, the Lillehammer, so to speak, of yep. of MGM is. Plus is going to be a show called Hotel Cocaine. Is from, it Hotel Cocaine or Cocaine Hotel? I mean, which one would you... If I walked in and I'm just like, look, I got mm-hmm. this show and broad strokes, yep. it's about a cocaine-filled hotel or a hotel filled yeah. with cocaine. Is it called Cocaine Hotel or is yes. it called Hotel Cocaine? No, it's called Cocaine Hotel. It has what's to it, be. But what is what is the actual show that they're talking about called? Hold, please. Kaya, could you put in some Chernobyl music while I search this? Why uh, Chernobyl? Real-time Googling. Because <laughs> I was going to say like some like the Jeopardy music, but don't we always say, Kaya, play the Chernobyl music? That's when we do has... Iger Counter and we, we talk about Bob Iger. Oh, well, yeah. look. It's the same geniuses who are like, nobody understands epics. What they understand is a defunct movie studio with a plus symbol at the end of it. It's Hotel Cocaine. Terrible name. You know what I don't understand? Cocaine Hotel. Cocaine Hotel. Cocaine Hotel. Yeah. I thought Amazon bought MGM. They did. And so you read these articles and they're like, this is a brilliant streamlining of Amazon's product across three broad categories with freebie ad supported Amazon Prime Video elves, I guess. And right. now MGM Plus, Forrest Whitaker and Cocaine Hotels. Look, I it's tough out here for any media service. I'm only partially joking. It's just they they make worthwhile things. I'm sure they will continue to make worthwhile things. I want people to keep jobs and I want more and more shows being made and opportunities for creatives. But it doesn't this feel like a we honestly don't know what we're doing move in the sense of I don't know. There are a couple of these recently that stand out where it's just like, the boys in marketing need to take five. You know what I mean? Like they've been locked in there with K-cups and ambition 
and impossible deadlines for way too long. And, maybe and, like and be, t- two or three more too, too many days at the, the cocaine hotel. Too many, maybe a few more, you know, maybe they get like a three night package. Um, right. it, it, it is these decisions that you could just feel the flop sweat emanating from them and they just don't make sense. Like the biggest example of this for me recently, Chris, was, and it comes from epics as well. Now, I know, again, because you've been deeply invested in the epic story for a while now, you have been diligently watching the first two seasons of a show called Pennyworth, which Mm -hmm. was a flagship show on epics. Now, in the studio stuff and Warner Brothers and Discovery and rebranding, this show has now moved to its new home, which aligns it with its studio and with all the other uh, IP drawn from this same well uh, for its third season. The third season of this show has now been officially titled Pennyworth, colon, The Origin Story of Batman's Butler. I mean, I don't have any, I don't have any jokes. I can't make that better or worse. But they obviously must have gotten some feedback where people were like, I'm not watching a show called Pennyworth. Mm -hmm. And then they said, could I interest you in a show about Batman's Butler, though? Well, then call it Batman's Butler. You know what I mean? You cowards. Like, come on. How can also, we bring Cocaine Hotel and Batman's Butler together? Also, the well, I think you just offer him like a spa treatment and he'll show up. I I just feel also strongly about that. This is I, I felt this after watching um The Batman, as you you know I did. Like I'm all for giving pre-existing legacy characters more compelling backstories, but that backstory being involved just uniformly being they were in the special forces. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not buying it. You know what I mean? Like also it just like straight up when, I mean, my, I think the most in memorable Alfred that I can remember is Michael mm-hmm. Caine's and mm-hmm. him just being like, I won't bury another Batman. You know, like that is like, I don't think of him as a young <laughs> SAS soldier. I, by the way, this is just like the trip with Steve Coogan. Like, like that was just, I can't even compete with your Michael Caine imitation, but <laughs> Why does everyone have to be in it? Chris, who's going to stand up for the butlers who just want to buttle? You know what I mean? Like, I we're shout out fellows. He should speak up on this. Like, yeah. just ironing a crisp pocket square and dressing an adult man without smirking. Those used to be skills in this country that we respected. You know, the origin story of his butler. What, fucking learn how to polish silver? Come on. I want to okay. uh, talk about the origin story of the uh, Galactic Rebellion. Yeah, I'd uh, rather do that. I'd rather dramatized do that in Andor. Before we do it, can I just say really quickly, mm-hmm. uh, we try to make recommendations on this podcast when we can, and there's a book out this week that Andy and I both read and adored yeah. called Stay True by Wasu. You know, may know Wa from his work uh, in The New Yorker. Uh, he wrote frequently for Grantland. He has been on this podcast before when he appeared on our 1997 music special all those years ago when we were just like doing that out of an office at Sunset Gower. Uh, shout out to Tate. And uh, this book is extraordinary. We hope to have Wa on uh, very soon to talk about it. But I, if anybody's looking for something to pick up, it's a memoir about Wa's time in college for the most part and growing up in the 90s in, uh, in the Bay Area in, in Berkeley. But it's so much more. It's a lot of it is about memory. A lot of it is about music. A lot of it is about culture at the time and the way in which people found one another and found culture. It's one of my favorite books that I've read in a really long time. So if if you hear my voice, it comes with me and Andy's highest recommendation. It's such a masterful work. And I 
I, 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 by the way, that was one of your best segues because this really is the origin story of your boys in a way. Like our life isn't was, um, we didn't experience the same, anything that he did in some ways. It's certainly not the meat of the book is about his, a, a friendship that he made in college and an untimely death. But specifically, it, it was wild to read a book about a generation that was our generation where maybe the last generation where it was about things and mm -hmm. concrete items and CDs and tapes and zines and books. And I just was really moved by it and blown away by the book. And I think I, th I think people of all ages will connect to it just because it's such a beautiful story about being a certain age in life. But it is just, it is, it, to my mind, like the definitive book about people exactly our age. <laughs> Congratulations, Juan. <So, Ma. laughs> I know. I, I, I don't know if that's the pull quote that he wants, but I, I couldn't get over that. All right, let's do it. Hey, by the way, if you listen to this podcast at this point, I feel like you have a passing interest in people who are literally our age. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't know if that's a compliment to you guys listening, but it we're telling on ourselves. So, uh, okay, I want to get through Andor. We have about, I, you know, I, I, we want to get to our Sterling interview. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask you this sort of macro question about it before I dive into some details about the episode. This is episode four, okay. Aldani. Uh, it was the first one written by Dan Gilroy, which is Tony Gilroy's brother accomplished screenwriter and director in his own right, did Nightcrawler. And the thing I wanted to start with, Andy, was the experience of watching it. Yeah. So for the for what it's worth, Andy and I, I think the four episodes were released to press initially. So you, we got the three-episode batch that everybody got, and we got a, a sneak preview where we got to, to watch four. So that was very cool. But it didn't change the experience that everybody else had, which is essentially... Uh, you could actually watch it in real time if you were looking at like any kind of like social media discussion of Andor of people being like, that first one was pretty good. That second one was pretty good. Yo, that third one was the shit. Oh my God. And then like that kind of cumulative effect that the three episodes had on people. Tony Gilroy has been really explicit about blocking out the season in three episode arcs and how that's sort of the way they told the story. Director, writer pairings on those three episodes, but also... You know, I mean, it's essentially like serialized storytelling in the most pure sense of it, where this episode of Andor ends with a guy being told to do some homework. It's not exactly a cliffhanger. You know, mm -hmm. you get very excited about what's going to happen. But I was wondering if you had any comments about watching this one slice of what will be a three-part story. For me, it was the deal. It was the closer. This was, I, I loved the first three. And I think we even said this briefly or alluded to this when we spoke to Tony. Initially, I intended to just watch those three before we talked to him. So we would be on the same pace as as the, the broader viewing public. But I couldn't resist, and I fired up four, and I got to watch it for pure pleasure. And four, in a way, was the episode where I was like, oh my God, they're really doing it. Mm -hmm. and, and by it, I mean telling such a, for me, thrilling and smart and grown-up and ambitious and expansive story. In some ways, the the cross cutting in this episode was more more dazzling and compelling to me than the cross cutting in the first three, which was you know the present day and kind of a a brief and sometimes intentionally unintelligible childhood origin story of Cash and Andor, right? Like I I was pretty excited because the the literally the galaxy opens up. We see what Luthen is, is re who he really is. We yeah. see him in both worlds. We see Coruscant. We feel the empire, like the, 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 the terrifying heat emanating off of it in a way that we didn't really feel on the, you know, on what was the name of the, 
the town that they were in in the beginning. The it, do, it doesn't matter, but like from that more distant outpost, we don't feel it as much. Now we're right in the heart of it, and this episode, in addition to introducing just wonderful characters and set pieces and ideas, um, this episode has a moment that I I just don't want to gloss over, mm-hmm. which is when they land on Aldani. Aldani, yeah. And, and Andor is now Clem. Mm-hmm. And they are doing the hike back to the group of rebels. And all of a sudden, it's get down, get down, get down in this beautiful, boggy UK terrain. I don't know where they filmed this. It's. Just, I mean, I just said Planet Scotland, but yeah. Exactly. And a TIE fighter screams across. And in that one moment, there was more, to me, more gravity and mystery and fear and possibility in a tactile way than in the last, I don't know how many Star Wars movies. Yeah. That was it in that one shot to me about what the show is trying to do and what it can do and the way it can just kind of enliven us. It was thrilling to me. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of, and, and this wound up being a, a rather unintentionally poetic image for the, for the 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 newest trilogy that we got. But in the trailer for The Force Awakens, and you saw the the Star Destroyer kind of like dug into the earth. Yeah. And then in the first scene, I think, of Force Awakens, Rey is kind of scavenging it. Yes, um, a beautiful scene. Maybe this was the best moment since that. Exactly. And in some ways, it was like that that kind of... You can have all of the stuff that makes Star Wars eye-popping, but it has to be scaled against like some kind of humanity. And it's these two people who are sort of figuring out who each other is and whether they need each other or not as they're walking across these highlands. And then all of a sudden, something mm-hmm. extraordinary like interrupts their, their conversation. And, and that's, again, why this marriage between between Tony, between Luke, I'm, God, I'm blanking on his name, the production designer, between Tony and- I think Tony it was Luke Holt, isn't it? Luke Holt, his, yeah, yeah. Who, who's just, this is his like, oh my God, flexing episode, I'm sure of many to come, of, of, of Tony's kind of real politic writing style and then the entrenched Jedi council at Star Wars of like Pablo Hidalgo, who you mentioned last week and others, really shines because in this episode, and I want to talk about some of the specifics, I want to talk about some of the great actors that show up, which was just also thrilling, but- Every set built here is built for a reason with story and weight behind it. It's not just, hmm, where haven't we had a lightsaber battle? Well, we haven't had one in front of lava in a while or in front of waves. Those aren't places. Those are ideas. Those are Zoom backdrops, basically. Here, we see essentially Langley, right? Like the CIA Mm -hmm. headquarters of the empire. And we've seen all white rooms before. We've seen these uniforms, these pristine empire outfits since the 70s. But seeing the outside of Langley and meeting Denise Goff's character as she approaches on her daily commute tells me more about everything, why they build the building like this, why they dress this way, that it's populated by people with jobs mm-hmm. who are showing up for work. You know, It communicates so much in a way that as I'm hearing myself talk, it just seems basic, but we haven't been given that before. Yeah, I love that ISB scene. Obviously, Anton Lesser, who played Kyburn oh in Game of Thrones... I imbues that character. Uh, I think was it Patrick Az? What's his name? Like, is that the name of the the? the sort I, I of... promise I'll do better with the names because I care too much. Um, gonna, otherwise, it's going to be tricky. But he his whole like we're health inspectors speech, which we mentioned, you know, to Tony, that was like very similar to the Eric mm-hmm. Byer speech in in Born Legacy, where he's like, you know, they're going through all these sort of reports on these 
outcome agents, these born Jason Bourne type agents. And the guy's like, Oh, we gotta, we gotta like research this more. This is awesome. Like it looks like it's working. And he's like, it's not working. And we got to find out how much to cut to save mm-hmm. the patient. And it's like a very similar both occupation and also way of talking about the occupation they have. I have a couple of notes here about stuff I love from it. So we could just like run through it and you can just jump in when you're like, yeah. yes, that too. Uh, Obviously, we just talked about the ISB afternoon meeting. I also like the implication that the ISB, while terrifying, is also like Cassian could have just as easily slipped through their fingers to use a Star Warsism. Like yeah. it's only because the Deidre says sees like on her iPad, like, oh wait, yeah. that's the that's the machinery that I've been looking for. Like I mean, in an era where the J.J. Abrams, like, it doesn't matter, MacGuffin, monkey's paw, rabbit's foot has become the, the the device that gets you into bigger story. This is such an antidote to that. A piece of machinery that I've never heard of, but of course must exist in a fictional universe in which hyperspace travel is possible. That's the thread that you pull that will reveal a re- the rebellion? Mm-hmm. I love that. I mean, w- remember, we're tracing the the rebellion that leads to the first Star Wars trilogy, and it comes from inventory. Yeah, the double lives of Luthen and Mamatha, like that's straight out of La Carre. But the moment where Skarsgård okay. drops one like mask to put on another, you know, and the, he goes from being the hard ass spy master to being this fabulous antiquities dealer is how many like, actors on, could man. do that? No, and then yeah. also. How many filmmakers in a high-pressured IP universe would take the time for that shot where he changes his body? Mm-hmm. He changes the way he stands. And shout out to our guy, Luke, who I'm just going to call Luke because I feel very intimate with him now, for designing the spaceship's like drop-down secret Closets. vanity. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. Um, and Genevieve O'Reilly, by the way, is phenomenal as well. That one scene with her movies. husband is like better than most marriage scenes on any other TV show when he's, he's just he, like... It's like, I'm so bored. Can't we have a fun dinner party? Yeah. He says, must everything be sad and boring? Yes. And I guess he's been watching House of the Dragon too. So I'm thrilled with that. Wow, shots. Uh, I would just Mm -hmm. also throw out there um, Gilroy's ability to keep threads alive. So there's a version of this show that's A+, that does not have Karn going back home with his hat in his hand and getting slapped by his mother. By his mother! Also completely explains why he acts the way he acts in the previous three episodes. It was just such a perfect button. And also, like, obviously, they keep him in there because he's, I, I would imagine, going to turn up in some other capacity as the show goes on. But you could just have dropped him and then picked him back up again in episode seven oh. if you needed to. But to have that moment was so great. The moment where he's dressed down, where they're all dressed down, and it's, it's this, this, this action by one ambitious vain fool will lead to the empire takeover of an entire sector is so well done. And I, I had to watch it again because I'm so used to tuning out when people just say space shit or sci-fi shit, you know, I'm like, okay, I don't, or even in Marvel movies, like I don't need to know about the Tesseract. Like it's just, let's move on to the next part. I rewatched the scene and what the guy was saying was, I need you to hollow inventory everything and then hollow sign it. So it's literally just saying space word in front of bureaucracy words. Yeah. I loved it. And or just that one moment that they found room for where the guy who led the military assault, you know, and got in his ear last week, the, the sort of stout Scottish guy, raises his hand as if he wants to say something in his defense. 
I know. These little moments. No. And we should talk about the, re- the little rebellion cell. They're doing a Western. Yeah, I was just going to say Planet Scotland and the planning of the Star Wars Guns of Navarone, which is basically mm-hmm. an impossible mission where the plan is so crazy nobody would be expecting it. This has happened a bunch of times in Star Wars. It's also like a tried and true uh, trope of, of Westerns, of World War II movies. It's like, we ha- you know, they will never expect us to go up the mountain face, you know, so we have to go up the mountain face. Goddamn, pretty pumped up about this and mostly pumped up because as we get to know who these people are, we get Evan Moss Backrack as a guy named Skeen, who was my favorite New York mixtape DJ of the early 2000s. I don't know about you. He did great stuff. He had access to the Fuji camp, I believe. A lot of early Lauren Hill stuff. That's right. What did you think of the, the Dirty Dozen that we got? And Alex Lothar. Yeah. A great, great British actor you might know from End of the Fucking World or Howard's End. Like, these are the decisions that smart people make that elevate all of it. Yeah, like, also Faye Marseille, who played the Waif on yeah. Game of Thrones. Yeah. They, every single person that's introduced with such, again, like Gilroyian economy, immediately has a face I'm going to remember, has a point of view or a voice or a, like, I get it. They're not just red shirts, even though that may be their fate, you know, and like Alex Lothar is just not who you'd expect to see in the rebellion, which immediately makes him interesting because he's a little more sensitive or quiet. And he smiles when they meet Clem for the first time. We're like, okay, it's going to be a little bit different. Evan Moss Bacharach should be in space. He should be in all these rooms, frankly, yeah. especially after his work on the bear. He's, they're all going to be interesting. And I think that lesser shows and lesser filmmakers could get nervous like, this is show called Andor. We have Diego Luna. We are delivering an origin story for a character. We already know where this is going, so let's all calm down and not get too cute, not get too complicated. Let's not take our eyes off the primary ball. But that's not what this show does, and it's all the better for it. All great points. Obviously, this is one of our favorite shows of the year, so we're going to keep talking about it week to week. Annie, I would really remiss if we didn't talk a couple of minutes about Reservation Dogs before we get into your interview with mm-hmm. Sterling. I just... In some ways, the end of this season made me uh, even more excited for the next season than the end of last season did. I, in some ways, I wonder whether Sterling would call this the end of version one of mm-hmm. the show. I mean, it kind of concludes the Daniel plotline. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, you know, one of the most tender, beautiful pieces of television I've seen in a while. This has been a remarkable season of TV. Uh, I, I don't mean to not have any notes on it. It's just like I'm still kind of processing it. What did you think? I was totally emotionally bowled over by it. Not a dry eye in my face. Um, I was going to say in the house, but I watched it alone. I'm in awe of the show. I feel like we've been, I I, I don't, I I feel like I've been trafficking in superlatives recently, good and bad. And I I want to try to stay away from that. But let's just say you could easily make a case that this is the best show on television. Um, It's certainly the most consistently rewarding and surprising show on television. I don't think there's anything that it can't do. And Mm -hmm. more than anything else, it's absolute respectful and caring love for its, for its characters and its ensemble. I just find really moving both as a fan of the medium, but specifically just as a fan of this show, you know, it, how do you reach a point on the beach that is at once the accumulation of 20 episodes of television that often veered wildly from this idea as a central motivating force with actors who two years ago, a year and a half ago, were not just unknowns to us, but some of them, like Lane Factor, weren't actors. And 
draw that performance and that level of pathos out of them and direct it in a way that it communicates what you're trying to communicate and then end with the saxophone player from the Lost Boys on the Beach. And, and the Brandon fucking Boy singer from, from Incubus. Incubus. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, it is just the most warm-hearted, generously spirited program. And like, this is, I don't think I'm alone in this. Like when people ask me now what to watch, I just say this. Yeah. Because it doesn't need our help because it is getting renewed and FX seems to be a really good and stalwart partner for it. But like, more people should be watching it. Just, you deserve that in your life, people who aren't watching it. You deserve to see what the medium can do and to be in this world. I would say probably that there's a run of episodes. I would say three, four, five, and six this season mm-hmm. are about as good as you can string together a few episodes. Mabel, Wide Net, uh, Decolonization, uh, and Stay Gold, Cheesy Boy are just like this... Im- incredible run of episodes. We said that last year too. Remember like where the show was like, oh, this is really good. And then suddenly it went into its like solo episodes. Yeah, I did that. Like, like, went- like when Kiss put out four solo albums before getting back together and you're like, oh my God. That's right. Excuse me? Um, it's just dazzling. But I just, there's such confidence in its looseness. You know, that that's the thing. Like it can take us anywhere and you're great. Like yeah, last I mean, week's it- episode offerings was tonally such a wild turn from the, acid trip episode the week before but you're just in it and then paulina alexis is just as willie jack is just like holding it down for you yeah and you know that you're you know you're going to go somewhere and see something i it's crazy i mean i'm glad i get the chance to talk to sterling about it because it's just i think that what he's doing is this this is sort of a i've this is a word i struggle with saying but i think what he's doing is kind of important not just because in terms of representation which is clearly meaningful and and really impactful just what he's doing for the medium making beautiful stories like this. I'm so glad that the show exists. I can't wait to hear your interview with Sterling. We can wrap it up there. We'll be back on Monday. We'll talk some dragon. We'll talk some other stuff. I can't wait to do that. Thank you to Kai McMullen for producing us and we'll talk to you next week. Let's talk rings. I want to go back to elves. I've had enough dragons, I think. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, Then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, well, now I am so thrilled to be joined for the second year in a row by the creator and showrunner of absolutely hands down one of the best shows on television, Reservation Dogs, Sterling Harjo. Thank you for coming back on The Watch. Thanks for having me. Thanks for all the all the love you guys gave us. It was good. Well, as you know, um, I'm a fan of, of you and your work. I'm also a fan of you on other podcasts, and I, I'm a little intimidated because you were recently on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, oh, yeah. and you were great, and... Uh, you even sang on that podcast and you sounded amazing. I know. Wild. The only person to ever get me to do that would be Terry Gross. Like I uh, literally, like I told her at the beginning, I'm like, you know, I, I remember going like, if I make it on fresh air, like um, I know I made it, you know? Of course. Yeah. And, and then I like, there was a period where I was like, I think I the windows closed. Like I'm never going to be on fresh air now. And then all of a sudden I was on, they, they asked me to be on it. I was like, Oh shit. Like, my dreams have come true. So I totally understand that feeling. I, I just have to ask, I know they don't edit heavily, but like when she asked you to sing, did you pause? Was there any hesitation or were you just in the no pocket with her? There. There was no edit there because she slowly built that. Like I could tell that's where she was headed. And I was like, oh shit, I just have to remember the song. And I, I usually sing, I could sing that song longer, but like as I was doing it, I was nervous that I was going to get it wrong. And then my whole family would disown me back home. You know, like you had one shot, you know? Yes, you were on the mic. Yeah, so I gave it, so I just did the like very short chorus. You did great. And uh, I won't ask you to sing today. I'm just gonna, I clear like I could have been building it up now, but I will not. Um, So I I do have a lot of questions for you about the creative process behind the show um, and about the amazing second season. But because we're talking on Thursday, the season two finale has just aired. So I I wanted to start with the end. And one thing that I know you've heard uh, me praise you in the show for, and I'm not alone in this, is just the show's seemingly boundless expansiveness that like you just keep widening past the core four to create a series that can go anywhere and embed us with anyone, you know, whether it's um, big on an acid trip or the aunties on a kind of a crunk conference this season. Um, Yet here we are in this in the season two finale directly addressing kind of the inciting incident of the show that suddenly, and it did catch me off guard that this was still where we were going, that these four friends were still going to go to California to honor Daniel. Um, How did you creatively stay focused on that storyline and why was it important that you did? You know, I think that, I think that it was important that we, A, I didn't want the audience to feel like they knew that was coming. I don't know, because there's something to me that would have felt cheap about that. If like every episode was like, here's a new piece of the story unfolding that they're going to go to California, you know. Um, I, I, I constantly just try to think of like different ways to, different ways for the story to go. You know, like I, I think of like, how do I change this 
from what I would expect or someone else might expect, you know, how do I flip it on its head? And part of that was, well, let's not have a buildup for them to go to California. Like, let's just drop it on everyone right at the end of the season. Um, I, and I think part of that is built into like, I never wanted the suicide of Daniel to feel cheap or that I was like using it as this like, um, storytelling device and and being exploitative with it and and making this like making this tragedy be part, like like help tell the story like I never wanted to lean on that you know like I always just wanted it to be there as this reminder and I always knew that they would go there I just didn't know what season they would go there mm. and then there was a point where in the writer's room probably we were talking like I, I just didn't want to keep this going. Like I didn't want the threat or the, the idea of going to California to constantly be what the show's about. I think right. the audience would get bored by season three. If it's like another season of like, well, they're raising money to go to California again, you know, like, which in a way going to California at the end of season two frees us up now to do whatever again in season three, you know, like in the way that you're saying, like you, you like that it's free to expand anywhere. Well, now it's even, even like we have even more room to expand, I think. Yeah. I was wondering about that specifically about you as the creator, where do you feel that you've left us? You know, obviously they, it's a little precarious. They don't have a car. Um, Bear can't get in touch with his dad. Not that he would necessarily be helpful. And he announces at the end that he's not going back. Um, in your mind, I, I guess it's a two-part question that in terms of, I don't want you to spoil anything in terms of right. like the actual mechanism of it, but emotionally, right. where do you feel they are at the end of this? Well, I think that emotionally, we're in that place where, you know, you lose, you, you deal with something and you heal from something, right? And a lot of times the pendulum swings too far mm-hmm. and it, it creates a vacuum or a void Um that you have to fill. And part of, I think our life's journey is like, you know, when you're like thirties, you discover what the hell was wrong with you in your twenties, you know? And then, and then you, you overcorrect and then you realize you didn't know anything. And then your forties, you're like, okay, now I'm trying to balance this and I'm trying to get it right in the middle. You know, I wasn't right in my twenties or my thirties, but I'm going to use my forties to try and get somewhere in the middle and like balance this life out. And I feel like that's where we've found them, or at least we've found them where they have this void now. Like they have done the thing that they, Mm -hmm. they were going, they were set out to do. And there is some healing from that. And there is some uh, healing from the loss of their friend, but, but you have two options after that. Like you either fill it with something good or you fill it with something bad, you know? Um, and so I think that's where we find them. I, I have a, another specific question about the the finale shoot, but the way you answered that really made me want to jump to something that I've really come to notice about the show and really appreciate, right. which is that while the focus, certainly like in the title, is on these four particularly particular young shit asses, right. one underappreciated aspect of the show is that you really illustrate in such subtle and compelling ways the way young shit asses become older shit asses in a hurry. Right. And then it's not just that like Bear has a roofing job, so he's grown up now. That's not the point. It's really more the top-down perspective, the perspective you were just giving me about, you know, 
trying to consider your life and what you can do as you get older. Right. On your show, the old people are often just as totally poleaxed by events as the young people. Right. Right. They were the young people, and we've had some glimpses this season of them as the young people, and right. the sense of life not as a monodirectional experience, but that right. you're just kind of swimming and splashing through it. Well, and I think whenever I'm in my 60s, I'll probably look back at my 40s and say, well, I thought I had it. But <laughs> yeah. then when you get to your 60s, you're really trying to balance it out, which is where I think we find the adults. And I think that we see the version of these kids, older that failed to do it maybe the correct way or the most healthy way, you know, uh, this adult group is sort of all splintered and like kind of in different places and everyone's kind of struggling with this thing that they never dealt with. Um, and I think that there's things that the kids can learn from that. And I think there's things that the adults are going to learn from the kids. And I also think that that adult group, we're going to have more folks come into play with that, I believe. Yeah. That's exciting. Um, what was the the beach shoot like in the finale? It's an incredibly moving scene and it's shot so beautifully. And I imagine it was kind of a heavy experience because you have your core four actors on this day. And, you know, it was in, in a way for me as a viewer, it was a celebration of these actors who some of whom, you know, all none of whom I knew a year right. ago, some of whom like Lane, from what I understand, wasn't even an actor a year or right. two ago. Right. And here they are delivering on some of the heaviest stuff you can ask actors to do. Right. Man, it was beautiful. It was, um, you know, it was like this big thing of like, I always knew we were going there. We talked about even season one going there, you know? Um, and so we always knew that they would end up right there. And man, it was like the confidence of those actors was amazing to just go there and there they are. And they're like, here we are. And there was this like kind of weight over everything. A, because we'd had a pretty grueling season two shoot, mm -hmm. like weather was insane. And like, we were just like kind of beat up and here we are. And we, we get to go to the beach for the last days and or the last day. And, you know, also we had Daniel with us, which he's not always yeah. with us. Dalton isn't always with us. So Dalton is there watching them do the scenes. So he's always this reminder of this character that like what the show's about, you know? So there's a certain amount of like responsibility that comes with that, I think, to the actors. It's like, mm -hmm. it reminds them of what we're doing. Um, but it was really awesome. I mean, everyone, you know, everybody's in wetsuits and like uh, we're out there filming and it's insane, right? Like you think like, oh, I've made it. I'm in Hollywood and uh, I'm a showrunner now. Like there's going to be some like, you know, and I'm sure like when they did Roma, there was a great thing that they had that made that easier but we're just in the water you know and it's like yeah it's not easy i've got safety people there and it's like yeah you don't want to go too far in the water because it's dangerous and so we're just grabbing these pieces you know and i'm just like directing and yelling and like you know people are running in and out and like cameras trying to stay up and then the camera's breaking down you know and it's like breaking down and like pulling back up and like uh we're trying to fix it and then we're fixing it and you know it's breaking and and in the middle of all of that there's these great moments with all of them and there's this you know the moment where cheese is giving a speech mm -hmm. lane was doing a great monologue i just saw him doing this great monologue it was beautiful I cut and we started moving on to do other coverage and I just happened to glance over and I saw it all hitting lane. Like all of a sudden the weight of everything had hit him after we had shot 
his coverage of his speech. And so I just like grabbed, you know, everyone, the DP and AD. And I was like, switch gears. And like, well, we should film Lane again. And they were like, yeah, we should. So we all, you know, flipped back on Lane. And I said, Lane, you know, do your speech again. And he did it. And it's like, that's that raw, everything was there. And he he just did it so beautifully. And, you know, I was just kind of throwing out lines for him while we were doing it. And it was the idea of like making it feel fresh and, mm-hmm. and, and, and it needed, it needed to feel like it does now. It needed to feel that way. Like it, it is this big moment with Daniel and it's hard to write that stuff, you know, like you want these moments to feel really big and Tommy Pico did a great job of writing it. But like, you know, and we altered it and changed it, but it's really hard to know how the emotions and the feelings going to hit when you're in the water and it's such a crazy shoot like that, you know? And then he just nailed it. And he just like, like, it was like all of a sudden everything clicked in and he knew what he needed to do. And it became this really powerful moment, I think for, for cheese, you know? And, and I don't know, it was like, and then I was worried, you know, like the footage, right? Like you're worried, like, Oh, that was stressful. And then started looking at it. And it was like beautiful. It was like, oh my god! Like it feels has this whole feeling of its on itself. You know, um, it feels great. It's like I don't know. I had this like Spike Jones feeling, and and then you know, of course, like Tim Capello. Like you know, we wrote that in there. Just like let's do something that we can that no one thinks we will do this. You know, and what a great way to like end it, right? Like, um, and we got this like found this like quote from Jesus that's like. Blessed are those that have not seen and yet still believe. And then he's like, I still believe. And then we go to Tim Capello and, you know, like that's me and my dad watching Lost Boys talking about that scene for my whole life and being able to put Tim Capello in there and close it out. And then like, you know, just a little known fact is that like the song I Still Believe was written by an Oklahoman, the lead singer of The Call, you know? So it was like all bringing it back home and it all meant. And then also, if you look at the lyrics of that song, like it's very meaningful to like what's happening to these kids and what they're going through. Tim Capello's, one of the first things that he said when he showed up on set was, um, well, should I oil up now or later? <laughs> and of course, I hope he's yeah. not the only actor ever to ask you that. <laughs> And of course, you always answer now, you know, oil up when you can. So, yeah. I, having worked with him, I think Kirk Fox asks that as well, whenever he shows up anywhere. <laughs> right, exactly. But, but I, I love that because that moment, those moments you're describing in the episode, it's the, it's the soul of the show, right? Where it is deeply meaningful and spontaneous, but also considered and baked into your experience and funny and neither right. undercuts the other. And, right. and, I, and I wonder if that moment you've described about observing something in Lane, if that's like a, a, a useful microcosm of something that that I note constantly week to week on the show, which is obviously you have great performers. Like these kids are wonderful and you bring in really incredible actors who get to do things that we often haven't seen them do. But again and again, you cast people and like, oh, that guy's dad or brother or the guys on the roof, people we haven't seen that often. And I'm like, why are these the best actors on TV this week? Week to week, why is Sterling finding talent? that other people are like, oh, I can't find actors. Not necessarily to play native roles, just to play roles. I mean, like, you know, I've always um, had a knack for having, like I can have a conversation with someone and know if I could get a performance out of them. And like, it's also, I think it's a lot to do with casting. And like, how is that role written? And can this person kind of fit into this role? And I've just always had a knack for that. I don't know why, like all of my films, I've always cast like that. And I like how the play, I like how untrained actors play with, trained actors i like how 
trained actors have to step up and like, oh man, this person's so real. Like I have to be real now, you know, and vice versa. The untrained actor sees the actor just like unafraid and like going for it that they're like, oh, like there's no time for me to be worried. Like I have to do this. Um, two examples are, you know, in episode 209, we had last minute sort of emergency and then a COVID thing that I had to recast two roles. Um, I mean, like days before, you know, and one uh, is the the old man Tupelo that's sitting in the uh, in the um, jail talking to Willie Jack about doing a hero dose of mushrooms and waking <laughs> up as a jailbird, you know, and uh, that guy is uh, his name's Steve Mathis. And he is this legendary gaffer and he sort of retired, but then came out of retirement to work on Res Dogs because he's from Oklahoma and he lives here now. And he just likes to work on things he likes to work on. And like, so he works on the show. But I mean, if you do a quick IMDb search, I mean, or if you go watch the show, the movies that made us, he's in like three of them. I mean, he he's like original Halloween, like he was oh. gaffing that he, back to the back to the future, like all, all of this. I mean, like one time I was playing uh, on, on a Bluetooth speaker on set, I was playing uh, Boys of Summer, the Diane Lee song. And it was playing and like, I'm kind of like, Groove into it, and Steve comes by and starts grooving with me, and he's like, "Yeah, that was a cool v- music video to work on." You know, he's like worked <laughs> on everything, you know. And so uh, he's just this character, and I I asked if he would want to play the part, and uh, it was like last minute, and he was like, "Yeah, I'll do it." So he he uh, you know we dressed him up, and and I think I'm gonna bring him back. And then um, the other one was uh, the the spirit Graham that is uh, yeah. Hokey's spirit. So that's Tava Samson. And, you know, if you, if you, I'm sure you're familiar with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Well, her grandpa is the famous Will Sampson. Um, he's the uh, chief, chief in the, chief, uh, yeah. and um, he was also in Poltergeist and all of that. So I originally wrote an homage because she works on the show. She's set deck and works in the art department. And she, um, I originally wrote an homage to her grandpa where I was casting her playing basketball with Hopi outside in the courtyard at the jail. Mm-hmm. At, kind of like to mimic the scene of uh, Will Sampson, her grandpa, and um, Jack Nicholson playing basketball and everything. And my uh, actor that was going to play the spirit got COVID and like couldn't be in it. And so like days before, literally flipped it and made her, uh, made Tava be the uh, spirit. And, you know, it was all, and she was originally just going to kind of give, be giving an homage to her grandfather. But uh, yeah, it worked out really great. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And, and and what you're speaking to is, I think, connected to the question I wanted to ask, which is I've just found myself talking about your show constantly over the last few weeks, both on the podcast and just in in life. And the thing that I can't get over, and I, and I feel like I probably said some version of this to you um, um, last year as well, which is just my main takeaway from Res Dogs is just how deeply you and your creative team care about these characters, you know, not yeah. just the the core Res Dogs, but everybody has these moments of respect and generosity and grace, whether it's Jackie or the aunties or, or, or Kirk Fox's Kenny boy, who suddenly has so much more to do this season. Um, and I guess this might be a broad question, but I'm curious what it sparks in you, which is how does that care for these fictional people as people manifest in the writing and production? And the second part of it is how does that, how does it keep it from being, how does it keep you from being overly protective of them? Because you love them but you're still willing to give them dramatic stakes and situations and put them in peril. Right. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, good question because I don't know the answer completely. I just know that, um, 
Look, I, I really enjoy life. Like I really enjoy the way that I grew up. I enjoy the people that I come from. And like, it was a cast of characters. My whole upbringing was like, I mean, I felt like I was living a movie, honestly. And like, you know, like there were just so many stories and I care about that so much. And then you throw on top of that, that there hasn't really been a native show like this to, to really just like, you know, kick the door in and be like, all right, like it's time, you know? And, and there's care that goes into that. And it's like, um, you know, I'm not making the detective story. I'm not making the cowboy versus Indian story, you know, where everyone's got a got a bolo tie on and turquoise rings and jeans and cowboy boots. Like I'm not making that, you know. Um, I get to tell something that's real and I know all of these people in the writer's room, we know all of these people and we care about them. And then you throw on top of that, these amazing actors. I mean, I mean, Elva who plays Jackie walked in in an open audition in Oklahoma city. And I met her, she had a Wu-Tang Clan shirt on and her hair was bleach blonde. And just like did this like great audition. And then I interviewed her after that and talked about her life. And she told me where she'd come from. And like, it's like, you know, I thought it would be cool. Like there's this show about native people. Like I thought, why not? I'll try, you know? And then like talking about her life and she's emotional and she's about to make me cry and she's about to cry, you know? And it's like, she wants to be a filmmaker and I know she can be whatever she wants. So you throw in these actors. I mean, the guy that plays Bone Thug Dog, who's a part of the bad guy gang, like he came in and he's like, I'm a rapper. And I just had him freestyle for me, you know? And it's like, uh, all of them almost got cast as the main crew. And whenever we did the final callbacks, I told them like, I'm going to cast jobs like the bad guy gang. And so I f made the bad guy gang kind of come alive and become this other thing. So I just care about all of it. And I don't know other than like, I just don't have much cynicism in me and I don't, um, it's like this first opportunity. I want to show it as a celebration. I want it to be a celebration of these characters of like being native about like our community, about the reservation. Um, and I don't know, like I find something to love in all of them. I mean, it's like when you first meet um, Jana's character, Bev, I mean, she's pretty like scary like, person to be around. Like she's not fun at the, at the IHS counter, you know, but then you move into like, Auntie's Night Out, and it, or like to uh, widen, uh, cast the wide net, I believe it's called. It was called Auntie's Night Out for a while. Um, and then she's just wild and, and awesome, but also like real and touching. And like, and I just find that that's what life is. I mean, it's beautiful. And it's also like everyone's very complicated. No one's perfect. Uh, I like celebrating human beings and like how flawed we are. You know, and and I think in native communities, because we're so close, because it's such a close giant group, you know, whenever I was fi filming 209, um, I thought about my uncle Marty a lot as we were filming it, because my uncle Marty, one of my first memories is going to a prison in McAllister to visit him as like a four year old, three year old, four year old child. And it's one of my first memories is going to see him. And he had been he went to jail a lot. But like. There was something just so special about him and, and awesome. I remember like one time he came out of jail and we always, you know, we'd have like a dinner party for him. We had a dinner for him and like he got out of jail and he, he had been reading clippings. I just got into film and doing this stuff. And, and my uncle Marty, I never would have ever thought he really would be into movies, you know. 
and we're kind of like off to ourselves and he's got a, you know, he's kind of on the outskirts of the party cause he's sneaking a beer and he's like, I'm really cool what you're doing. You know, it's cool what you're doing like the whole, um, the movie stuff. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, um, you know, uh, kind of silent for a second. And he's like, my favorite filmmaker, Steven Spielberg. And I just like floored me. I was like, how would you even like, what do you like, as, like how, like, where do you watch movies? Like, you know, and he just watches his movie and reads in jail, you know? And he's like, my favorite filmmaker is Steven Spielberg. And he was like, and, and the reason I like him is because he creates a world for you. Like it's his vision of the world. And that's what he creates. And he was like, when you watch Schindler's list, he said, that's his world that he's created. And, I, and, and it's through his eyes. You see, it was like so profound to me to hear my uncle say that this person that was in and out of jail and there's beauty in these people that like, I think get forgotten, but whenever you're in a tight knit, larger community and family, you don't write people off as easy. And, and, and I think that you see those, those full human sides of people. And then, you know, my uncle died while we were filming this episode, which is kind of about Willie Jack going to connect with this person and that this person isn't bad, even though she's locked up and she did something bad. Like there's this whole other side to her um, that Willie Jack and the audience gets to see. And I just, I don't know, like I like exploring that. I don't think people are perfect and I don't think that people are all good or all bad. And I, and I think sometimes there was a quote that I read in some film book at one point, and I think it was talking about films in the 1970s. I'm not sure. I don't remember, but it's like characters are great when they are, when, you know, when they're exactly the opposite of who you think they are. It's like, it's like, that's what surprises us in films. It's when they are the opposite of what we think they are and what we're used to seeing them as. And so I get to play with that a lot, I think, in Reservation Dogs. I think the other manifestation of that that comes to mind and particularly highlights the lack of cynicism you're talking about in you and in the, the worldview of the show was the decolonativization episode. I may have mixed up the words in that, but I was really in awe about the way that you're able to so, with the same tone that the show always does, just both satirize and celebrate at the same time, you know, and, 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 and in so doing, give us a glimpse of hard things that, like, as a society, we're really struggling with how to talk about or present, sure. you know, um, Amber Midthunder's great performance as Miss Matriarch, who's from the Bay Area, but her soul is with her ancestors. <laughs> yeah. But you're not dragging her, you know what I mean? She's there, right. too. She is a person who's right. there, too. Um, right. why is it important to you to be able to laugh and nod at the same time in these, in these moments? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I feel like they're just like, it's just good storytelling. You know, if I read, I think I mentioned Flannery O'Connor the last time when I was on this podcast, but if it's like, this is a safe that, space for Flannery O'Connor references. Okay. I promise. So, so whenever I read that, it's like, I, when I read her stuff, I'm like, man, I'm so torn and, and it's so complicated. It's like, and and writing Amber Midthunder's character as this one note thing would have would have just been another show. Like I like the other shows can do that. Like I don't want to do that. You know, like 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 I try not to hold judgment over them. And like I want to see, um, you know, they are really trying. They're really trying to connect with these kids, and they're doing things that are like positive, and they're actually opening kids up, and like you know, they're helping them share their soul and like and like discover things about themselves. But also, like, they're a little out of touch, you know, and and, you know, I, I grew up with people talking to me like that, you know, at youth conferences and things. And like and actually, when you're young, you think, holy hell, like I can I can get out of here and be them. So a lot of times, like I bet half of the kids in watching Miss Matriarch talk are like, yeah, she's awesome. Like I can go be that. But then there's another 
you know, and then you get older and you're a teenager, you're more cynical about things. You're like, ah, oh, this person's full of shit, you know? Um, so I don't know, like, it's really, uh, you know, it's almost instinctual, I think. Like, I don't, like, I don't plan that, you know? Like, I don't, we don't say like, all I know is if I read something that doesn't feel real, I just try to, I mean, a lot of times you'll, 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 you'll write or you'll read something that just feels kind of one note. And that usually means to me that there's something not real. And a lot of times like something's too one way or the other. It's like, you're either mm-hmm. too good or too bad. And, and, and if you're too good, I want to put some flaws in there and, and, and muddy it up a bit. Cause it feels like real life to me. One thing that's become, I, I, I mean, it, if it can be a tradition after two seasons is that each res dog kind of gets a, a solo album of an right. episode. And it's such a thrill to see because they're not what you expect them to be to the, your point just now. Like I did not expect the Willie Jack episode to be the one that it was, for example, but the, the cheese episode really stood out, not just as a showcase for what Lane Factor has done with his part and his sort of emergence as a performer. But in reading about it the next day, I, I read that the particular, some of the specifics of, of cheese's experience came from one of your writers right. uh, in his experience. And I, and I wondered, especially now that you're in the room again for season three, how do individual stories manifest out of your collective group? You know, it's interesting, like thinking about season three, I mean, like, I think maybe that was an idea that I threw out and you could just see Bobby light up. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, and then like you see his draft and his life's in it, you know, mm-hmm. and there's no changing it too much, you know, like I, you know, like I do a pass on stuff, but like, I, you know, there's not much I can do to that. There's so much reality in what he's doing. And it's such a complex thing where it's like, there's pain and there's humor and there's all of this stuff. Um, And I can't imagine going through what Bobby went through. You know, I had a family that I could be home with, but like Mm -hmm. being, you know, having to grow up and be at a boy's home for the two years of my life, as I become an adult, just because I was a graffiti artist, like, I'd be like, it's fucking nuts, you know? Um, And so like, he really put himself into that and it felt you could feel it on the page, you know? Um, and then thinking like right now, like how the individual stories happen, I don't know. It's very instinctual. It's like, you know, cause like there's this thing, we have this core group and you sort of like, because we're making this show about this core group of kids, you want to sort of like shoot them out of a shotgun just for dramatic purposes of like, boom, get them away from each other. Mm-hmm. And then and then you bring them back together, you know? And it's sort of this like pulsing thing of like wanting to make sure, like, like do they do it right or do they do it wrong? You know, what happens when they separate, you know? Because they're so strong together and they're a family and they're a unit. Well, the drama lies in like getting them apart and seeing who picks up the pieces and how that works. Um, and that's happening this, we've only been in the room for three days, but like three or four days, but, that's already happening, you know, for this. And like, like this season, for instance, like for the third season, I'm, um, I sort of have these like guiding guideposts of like telling the room, like, well, I would like to see this be the case and this be the case this season. And so we kind of like, everything's kind of circular in those, in these two like posts that we have. And it's like, how can we be more, more this way, the, the, this sort of tone that I've set up for the season, you know? Um, and then we throw out every name. It's like, well, what, you know, cause we, last season we didn't give Bear uh, his own episode 
in season one. Yeah. So last season we were like, we have 10, 10 episodes. Let's give everyone an episode. Um, but then you're like almost every side character we've discussed giving them, we've discussed an episode just for them, you know? Um, and sometimes it happens and a lot of, a lot of times it gets thrown out. And this season we're already kind of talking what characters are going to get episode. You know? <laughs> season 10, I mean, White Steve episode. Right, exactly. I mean, we've talked about that. I mean, at one point, like, you know, I don't think that we'll do this. So I don't have to just give nothing away. But at one point, it was going to be Bill Burr and his uh, his son, White Steve. You know? Oh, there it is. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, um, so like we, we really just like and, and I've never been in a room before and I've never been a part of a room. But people that have been that are in the room have told me that something about the sort of blue sky stuff like just throwing things out is really fun. And I, I think there's a lack of judgment if something bombs, you know, like I, I encourage everyone and I'll make fun of them for an idea. You know, I will like, like, like what? Like, like think you should think more before you say that. And like, depending on who it is, you know, and uh, one day Dallas Goldtooth sent me some texts the night before. And the first thing that I did the next day was like, let me read you Dallas's pitches. It was kind of odd, you know? And then what's hilarious is three days later, I land back on his pitch, like rejected it the first day. Yeah. And then three, four days later, I'm like, man, I hate to say this, but like, what if we do what Dallas said, you know? And then all of a sudden he's redeemed, you know? Um, it's a process. Yeah. So there's no hard feelings. And like, you know, half of them are from a comedy group that we've, we've, um, We've got a lot of calluses making fun of each other for a long time. So, uh, you know, it's it's a good process just messing around with each other. Not to get too in the weeds with it, but I, I wonder if you come in saying, you know, you'd like a, a solo showcase for Bear or a solo showcase for Willie Jack, you, you'd like to maybe consider getting to California this season, for example, or is there an example you can pull out of season two of an episode that just didn't exist and just sort of became a repository for things that slid off of other episodes or that other episodes turned into? You mean one that ended up... One that ended up filmed, but when you, you know, in the first week or two, it didn't so, yeah, exist. Yeah, there's one that's interesting, uh, and it's Willie Jack's uh, the, the Jail. We wrote that, like, I think we broke that like a week and a half before we shot it. Hmm. Um, and and Migazi got sent away for like a day or two to go write that. And, you know, that originally was a yard sale episode. It, I remember in the in the writer's room, it was a yard sale. So it was like this community episode. Like it was on the street and stuff. And then that changed to uh, a wild onion dinner, which is kind of a cultural thing that we have. And like, they usually happen at like an old church or some sort of like community house or something, you know. And, um, and so then that was going to be that. And there was a mythological sort of, being that is a part of that, but, but I won't say anything about that because it might come later. But mm -hmm. um, and then I, you know, I have these like moments where I'm like, uh, that doesn't feel like there's something, and I always t I can always tell it's just bugging me. It's like it's like I know deep down that's not what it should be, and it's not finished. And so I usually come to the writers, and in this case, it was Tazba Magazine Bobby who are production writers on the show, and I was like, man, this just isn't it, like. 
like, what is it? You know, like, what is it? Actually, it might have been just Migazi and I, because at one point Bobby got COVID and then, or was gone. And then I think Tosbo was editing her episode. And I was like, it just doesn't feel right. Like, there's, it's not there. And then it's like, take away the gimmicks. So you take away the mythological being, you take away the wild onion dinner. What is it? Like, what are we trying to say? Mm-hmm. And it's like, how else could we say it? And then that's where that came out of, you know? And so like there's bits and pieces of things that are from those episodes, but like in the end, it was like, it's almost like, you know, a good blues song or folk song. It's like boil this down to like, to the essence of what it's supposed to be. And does it survive? If not, what are you trying to say? You know, like rebuild it into something else. And I think that that is a key thing that we do in the room. It's such a good lesson for all writers of any kind, honestly, like what, what actually you're trying to say here. And you've been... Sterling, you've been so generous with your time. I just have one other, one last question, which is kind of just sort of a a broad one in the sense that I think when we spoke last year, whether it was directly an answer or a question or if it just sort of came up, I, I was really struck by this idea that when you were shooting season one, you know, and the, the signs go up and the production vans show up. And I would imagine in some of the communities and streets that you're filming, people are like, what is this? Like, right. I don't know, I don't know what this is. And, and, you know, the cast isn't getting recognized whether they're in Oklahoma or they're in Los Angeles. Right. Season two, that must've changed considerably. Yeah. I, I'm wondering how the energy of the, the ensemble has, has, has changed heading into season three and not just like the actors are famous now, but literally you, you, you make the show in a place where other shows that we talk about on the podcast aren't filmed. You work with people so closely who have been with you through different parts of your career and different projects. What's the vibe? to get to do this again it's great man i mean it's like the community loves it especially after first season came out like anyone that was mad about us being around after the first season (laughs) like anything goes now right and like and also the uh, muskogee nation who's the tribe in town the in my tribe that they're so proud of it i mean like they were in a parade the other day like the chief and a couple of other people and they all had reservation dog shirts on Totally bootleg oh shirts too. Like I don't even know where they got them, but like they're <laughs> even <rocking>. better. <laughs> yeah, and um, my aunt was selling them for a while, but I don't know. Uh, she was like making them, but um, and you know, like we give back to the community. We, we try not to just be these people that come in and film something and leave. Like even afterwards, we'll have like community barbecues on the streets that we film. Uh, the other day, my fiance Britt Hensel, she's a dog, you know fanatic and rescuer she um on set while we were shooting her and the, a lot of the crew and myself and different folks would um and my brother different everybody there was a whole crew of people that would like while we're shooting the show it's like text messages going out like there's a dog on this corner of blah 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 and blah 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 let's go rescue it, it needs help this one has the mange let's talk to the owner and literally like i think they saved like 14 animals uh like on the during our shoot and so as a thank you to the um community we had a uh mobile clinic uh with the tulsa spca we had a mobile clinic come to the neighborhood and like spay and neuter and vaccinate like dogs for free that day and so the neighborhood all the the neighborhood in which we shoot and community in which we shoot could come and get it done and like hundreds of people showed up with dogs and stuff so like you know, it's uh, people love the show. I mean, we had the premiere in Oklahoma and at the Muskogee Nations Casino. Like, they gave me the option to premiere in LA or here, and I did it here. And um, and we had the premiere in Tulsa. And like, uh, you know, they it, it was amazing. I mean, everyone came and like dressed in like the best, like sort of 
native modern tribal gear and like uh which is like ribbon skirts and ribbon shirts and everyone looked nice i had covid so i didn't get to go oh no uh, but uh it was wonderful it was like packed house and everybody loved it and you know um it was so, so welcoming and people just like i mean people have like especially in this community and native people like have taken such ownership over the show it's not it just doesn't feel like mine it comes out and like all of my friends and people that I know in in my community and all over native Indian country are just talking about it. And it's almost like being in a room where they're talking like, and I'm talking about a line, but it's almost like being in a room where like people are talking about you and, and they're not addressing you. Uh, Cause I just get to see these conversations happening about this show and it's great, but like, you know, it's not mine anymore. It's theirs. Yeah. And like, it's super exciting and just really fulfilling to make the show. It's great. What's well, significant, I think, and it's not common that you're there. You you live and work in the same place, right? right? I mean, most showrunners, for whatever reason, you know, are living in LA or New York, and then they fly right. to where they're shooting, and they spend six months in a place, and then they're gone. But you're there, and your writers' right. room is there, your exactly. family's there. Exactly. Well, I'm so pleased I got a chance to talk to you. I just thank you again for this season of TV. I just feel like it's important not just for the show which you make, which is just delightful, entertaining, but I just find it really inspiring for the medium that like TV yeah. can do this, man. It's awesome. Yeah, man, it's exciting and like. You know, uh, I'm glad I didn't know any better. I'll say that. <laughs> like, There's something to be said about that, right? Yeah, there is, man. I'm really glad, you know. And um, it's been, uh, I've sort of approached things like that, just sort of dove into them and did them. And so, uh, you know, and in this case, it really worked. And yeah, it's great. And, you know, thank you guys for all the support. It's been really awesome. Well, we love it. All we ask is season three, and then hopefully we get to do this again at the end of it. Yeah, let's do it, man. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks, Ron. Right. Thank you. <laughs>